All right. Uh, welcome to this episode of Xenoforce Reborn. Yes, this is pre-recorded. I'm your host, Doug Bendo, and today we have another exciting episode of Xenoforce Reborn. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be pretty exciting. Um, so I want to get into um, a conversation that we've, we've had, and, and this is basically just wrapping up the whole uh, Idolo thing um, in the fact that we started it on a live show. I did an intermediate um, pre-recorded show, and now we did another live show, and now I want to wrap it up with my final, you know, uh, show here. So I, I want to be fair about it. I wasn't going to do a pre-recorded episode uh, this this uh, you know bi-weekly or bi-weekly period, and um, I decided in the end that I was just going to go ahead and do it because. I didn't want to necessarily waste time in the next live episode talking about, you know, uh, Idolo, the orbital frame system, so on and so forth, um, and rehashing this out with Ryan. When Ryan obviously already has his, you know, uh, set beliefs of what he believes, um, and besides, he's got to, like, actually take the time to go back and, like, re-watch Zone of the Enders, and then watch Robotech, and then, yeah, he can come to his his, uh, you know, modified conclusions then. Now, here's the thing about this, okay? This is not going to be an episode dealing with modding, per se, or Command & Conquer, um, you know, Xenoforce Reborn, in, in any real given entirety. It's, it's not going to. Uh, I've already talked about the fact that we aren't going to put Zone of the Enders in the game, and, and there are reasons for it. I mean, the first reason is it deals with just a placeholder concept. Like, if we put Zone of Enders in the game, then we'd have to get rid of something else. Okay, so, I mean, like, that's just a reality of where that sits. It's not like we actually really get a choice in the matter of saying, okay, based on how the story is, let's just add Zone of Enders in there and everything will work out just fine. Now, realistically, looking at it, you know, if we wanted to do a form of evolutionary tech, if we wanted to do that, then we could, of course, you know, given like Nod or, or GDI or the Forgotten, you know, a Zone of Enders platform. But in reality, that wouldn't make any sense purely based on the fact that you already have pre-established content there that we're working from. So remember, for those of you who, you know, look at it and say, well, why can't you just, you know, layer zone of enders on top of another faction? Um, the biggest reason why you can't do that, and this is something I really didn't discuss, is, but I should have discussed it, I guess, in the, you know, like two episodes ago or whatever. Uh, the biggest reason why you can't do that is that these factions already have established tech. They do. I mean, they already have, you know, an established, um, you know, system and to try to change it up for the sake of Metatron or whatever we would be doing really just doesn't make a lot of sense in the overall scheme of things, you know, and that's just from like a, uh, a story perspective. It, it, it doesn't, um, I know a lot of people will have a hard time understanding that, but believe it or not, you know, when you're developing a game, you do have to use these things called rules. And one of the rules that we set out early, 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 early on in developing this is that we were not going to add any new content to the original 
the original three. Now, when I talk about the original three, I'm talking about Nod, GDI, and Scrin, of course. That's what I'm talking about. So when I say we're not going to add any original content, I'm talking about we're not adding any original content to them. Now, we have clearly broken that rule, but it comes down to what degree did we break the rules and for what reasons we broke those rules. Uh, one of the reasons to why we actually broke that rule was due to the fact that it allowed us to test new concepts. You know, um, I remember early, early on, and I'm talking early, early on, uh, the guys from the Shockwave mod, um, basically for Command and Conquer Generals had their, their like little mech walker things. Um, and it was a light mech walker. It wasn't anything crazy. And we were basically trying to test the concept of how GDI would look with a mech walker. Like in other words, was that one of the reasons to why they were effectively losing consistently in, you know, a, a mobile suit campaign. So what we did was, you know, we, we, you know, put it, um, in the game, we tested it out just to see how things were. And then lo and behold, of course, um, you know, there were people that saw our content. Um, they got all butthurt about it. The guys from the shockwave mod and they said, Hey, you can't use our model. Da 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 da. And I'm like, well, we're just using it for testing purposes, you know, and if you really cared that much about the model, maybe you shouldn't have made it so easy to, you know, extract it out of your game. Um, and, and, and understand something that mech walker was never going to be in there for any long period of time. I mean, I think it didn't even last a month in there because it didn't serve the purpose of what we, we were looking for, you know? Um, but at the time it just came down to the fact that, you know, you need a two legged, a two legged mech walker with armor plating in a certain way and with a weapon assortment in a certain way and meeting all these requirements, which it clearly did meet those requirements. The question became, how does this impact the faction? Now understand something. This was like early on. I'm talking before we ever even developed the, you know, uh, balance equation to how the game actually works before we understood that you had to have different equations for tanks uh, you know, bad Lloyds or, or, uh, mobile suits, if you'd like to call them that, um, fighter planes, helicopters, so on and so forth. This is before we did any of that. Okay. This was basically us beginning to understand, okay, how do the mechanics of an APC with, you know, a, you know, heavy machine gun on them work versus how do the mechanics with a mech walker with the same machine guns mounted on it work. Like, like, how is it different? You know, and, and why is it that the mech walker favors in some scenarios, but the APC favors in other scenarios? If you keep the armor the same, if you keep the attack power the same, you know, how, how do wield mechanics work versus leg based mechanics and so on and so forth. So this was like early, early development in terms of how we saw things. And, you know, of course, like I said, they got mad about it and, you know, like, honestly, I didn't care. In fact, I believe I told them, like, if they kept on bitching, I'd just leave it in the game. But of course, we did take it out. I mean, there was no need for us to have it. It served no purpose whatsoever other than for us to satisfy that one element of it. And also, it allowed us to practice on importing models into the game um, and exporting models, you know, um, 
you know, uh, out of the game. You know, I mean, like it, it, it did that too. So there were, there were a couple of things. Like if you look at our early, early development of stuff, um, we did, you know, throw a lot in there. We did, um, we did that. We did the Mammoth Mark II. Um, we had, uh, I believe it was the Chinese, um, Emperor bunker based, uh, overlord tank i think that's what it was yeah i mean like the bottom line is we had a lot of shit in there we did um we also had like the titan in there um we had a lot of stuff so we really did know we got our yeah we really did know exactly how things would play out from a, a later on perspective of if you add this other crap in here what does it actually do for the faction and this is before we had the kodiak and the salamander and stuff like that so when you wonder, like, where do these guys come from with their, uh, you know, crazy rules of they're not going to allow new stuff into the game? Well, to tell you the truth, uh, for, for original factions, that's where it came from. Simply put, we had, um gotten ourselves into a situation where it seemed like every time we added a new element into the game, the game just got murkier and murkier. And that's really what happened. So it wasn't a big surprise to me when me and Ryan agreed on the idea of honestly just not adding anything new from a game perspective. <laughs> Wait a second. There we go. Okay. So yeah, it, it wasn't a great surprise. It didn't blow my mind. Me and him came to this conclusion and basically that was that. Part of it comes down to this. You know, for as much things we say are wrong with EA in terms of the fact that they did not give, you know, enough meat to the bone of GDI Nod and Scrin. I will say this. They did give the basic necessities. They did. And they gave them in a way where, as a, a uh, developer, okay, as a game developer... You look at it and you say, wow, this is really tough to improve upon like it is. And and it's tough to improve upon in the sense of saying, okay, let's expand this universe. Let's expand the content and let's throw a whole bunch of stuff in here we like, but still keep it balanced. And, and that's the key thing. That last part, let's keep it balanced. That's what you basically run into as a problem. Um it's not that you can't add brand new content to Nod GDR or Scrin. You can do that. But it comes down to what content is actually favorable content and why does that content among other contents actually make sense? Like in other words, why would I choose that content over the other content that already pre-exists? And when we gave the original content a fair shake, what we began to realize was 
there really wasn't a whole lot you really could do with like GDI, for example. Like rail cannon tech just really put GDI apart from everybody else. The fact that you could basically have a, a standardized tank and then slap a rail cannon onto it just changed the whole mechanics of the tank altogether. You know, the fact that the rail cannon can hit air units, ground units, the fact that, you know, if you truly want to utilize rail cannon technology in its entirety, then it even has technically a mortar, you know, capability as well. Like, in other words, it, if you go to look at rail technology in the way that it actually works, what you find out is GDI probably made the most common sense based decision you could possibly make. <clears throat> now, there were certain elements about it that clearly, when you look at the original three, you look at it and you say, ah, you know what? You guys should have done this, that, and the other. And EA, of course, corrects this later on with Kane's Wrath. But the problem with Kane's Wrath is Kane's Wrath is not necessarily a full-fledged game. You get caught up in these sub-faction con concepts of... Well, we fix this, but you gotta lose these other things in order to have this. Or we fix that, but you gotta depart from these other things to have that. And that's not really the way it ought to work. You know, it, it's not, you know, um, it's one of these things where if EA would have sat down, really thought about it and did it right. Okay. If they really would have, you know, sat down, thought about it and did it right, what they would have realized was they only needed three factions. They didn't need any sub-factions. And, like, realistically, all that was needed at the most, at the most was simply just, you know, blocking out tech based on other tech that you choose for that faction. That's, that's basically it. So, in other words, if you choose, you know, zone armor tech, for example, then you can't have walker tech. Or if you choose, you know, Walker Tech, then you can't have Quad Tread Tech. You get my point of what I'm saying here. Like, in other words, in the way that GDI should have worked, I would say based on if EA wanted to regulate the fairness of the game, what they should have done was had a selectable tech system that the player could use, you know, where you choose one part of the tech tree, then it blocks out another. Then you choose another part of the tech tree, it blocks out another, so on and so forth. That's exactly how EA should have done it. There was no reason for EA to, to go about and do what they did in terms of sub-factional gameplay, because all it truly did was hurt the game itself. Now, this is based on the concept of EA playing off of the, uh, you know, aspects of proportionality. Like, in other words, EA may have done plenty of game testing and realized you cannot have zone armor, you know, quad tread ability, and walker technology all on the same battlefield. It doesn't work. It's really bad. You shouldn't be able to do that. And if that's the case, then, you know, I mean, like, fine. That's what they found based on their balancing system. Um, I will definitely say that, yeah, you can, if you balance the stuff correctly, or to an extent. But, you know, in all fairness, I, I think that you then have to look at a faction like Nod. And then ask, well, can you have, you know, cybernetic technology? Can you have, you know, um, 
shall we say, droid technology. And I don't even know if Nod technically has like a fourth stem to work from, to tell you the truth. I, I don't even know if they do, unless we're talking like power armor, you know, based on like what the Black Hand would have or Cabal squads would have or something like that. Um, that's about the only way I could see it. So, you know, like I, I get where EA comes from with the idea of a sub-factional system based on balancing. And I think that it's much easier to say, well, this is how you do GDI, but the nod definitely becomes more complicated. And then with the screen, I, I don't even know what to say about them. I wouldn't even think that hard into it, because I don't think, quite honestly, the screen should have those same types of limitations that the other two factions have, because they are an estrial terrestrial force, you know, coming to reclaim Tiberium that they ceded, you know, unteen whatever ago. So... And again, this is not from a Xenoforce perspective we're talking here, but we're talking from an EA perspective. Uh, but like I said, I, I don't believe that having a sub-faction system works. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, what does this have to do with Zone of the Enders? Like, why on earth are you bringing this up when you said you were going to talk about Zone of the Enders and, and overlaying it from a gameplay perspective? Well, it has a lot to do with that, actually, in the fact that when you try to overlay an existing faction with brand new content what you have to do is you've got to look at that marginal gap of impact okay like in other words when you make the next unit okay that surpasses the official status quo what does that unit do and then of course you've got to look at that unit in its subcontext of its category in other words you know infantry um tanks uh, or, or armored, you know, armored ground vehicles, um, aerial, uh, you know, based vehicles, so on and so forth. You get my point of where I'm coming from. And in reality, uh, the, the fact is that the orbital frame system in the way that Ryan had described it, yeah, it, it's too big of a jump. It is. Even if you were looking at Nod, like the fact is the orbital frame system is just too big of a jump. In other words, you can't really attach it to an existing force other than possibly the screen, you know, but then that wouldn't make any sense. And this is one of the bigger problems that you have with Zone of the Enders is that the technology that, you know, is there is so advanced that it realistically would probably go to Nod if it went to anybody. But then what it would do is it would start messing in screen technology in the screen hemisphere of things. And at that point, you've got to readjust the screen and say, okay, what parts of this make sense and what parts of it don't make sense in regards to how the screen actually operate. So that's one of the things that you, you really do have to look at here. Um, and I'm not saying that it couldn't be done. I'm not saying that you couldn't take like an existing nod faction, you know, for example, and then overlay it with, you know, um, uh, like Barom or, or, uh, whatever it is in Zone of the Enders, uh, one of those factions, uh, you know, the Ender factions that use orbital frame tech. I'm not saying that you can't do that. In fact, you really could. But what I'm saying is, is that the first thing that you have to look at is once when you overlay the faction with it, how high does the faction spike in its performance based on this newer, um, you know, entries of additions? Uh, or newest edition, I guess you could say, uh, to the actual faction. 
And I think that's where you run into a problem. And again, like I said, we've already tried this before, so we know how, how this can impact things. Um, the greatest impact, I would say, of all was the Kodiak and the Salamander and the Colossus. Like, if, if you were looking at three units that we have held on to that make such a major impact from a gameplay perspective, there are three units that I could look at and tell you they make an enormous impact. And they have changed the the way we have viewed, uh, shall we say, processing this game. Um, the first one by far is the uh, the Kodiak. Okay, so when we talk about the Kodiak, for example, uh, the reason to why the Kodiak is such an impactful unit, and we had to leave it there as a new addition. Um, in conjunction with everything else that existed. And it was one of the units we were willing to break the rules on um, when it came to brand new content. The reason why we did this was that when it came to the Kodiak, the Kodiak symbolized game status. You know, I, I talked to you guys about the idea of um, having beginning, middle, ending, and then epic gameplay. For GDI... What signifies basically epic gameplay is when you get to that Kodiak. That is what symbolizes epic gameplay. What symbolizes when you're about to take this game into overdrive is the Kodiak. And this is one of the reasons to why we allowed for that unit to maintain its existence in our mod under the GDI faction. Most people who develop CNC mods, you know, they get themselves into the realm of the Kodiak, and then what do they do? Well, they say, okay, well, we'll set it up where you can only have a couple Kodiaks, or what happens is you get one if you're lucky. That's what they do. With us, it was entirely different. Uh, we didn't do that. What we did is we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to basically allow the player to have an unlimited assortment in regards to the Kodiak, and we are going to treat it as if this is GDI's next step in their, you know, expansionist form of power. That's what we decided to do. And the reason why we did that was because the Kodiak itself represents a different level of gameplay. It does. And it really shows what happens when a GDI player is able to capitalize on economy in manufacturing abilities, you know, and it gives significance to the concept of having a spaceport, so on and so forth. And again, this is why we decided to keep this unit in the game. It symbolizes so much from an eco perspective, a production perspective, and then of course the sheer blunt force of what the GDI player is now able to, you know, rule out with. I mean, like when you talk about a Kodiak on the battlefield, you're easily talking about one unit that might as well be equivalent to at least, we'll say, four mammoth tanks with rail cannon upgrades. And that's at least. Now, I might sit up here and say that it's more than that, definitely, once we factor in that armor um, that it has, and then once we factor in the 
the cruise missile abilities and things like that. But you're talking at least four mammoth tanks um, with rail cannon upgrades. That's how powerful the unit is. And the fact that you can produce it, you know, at the cost of, you know, what four mammoth tanks would be with rail cannon upgrades really, uh, you know, symbolizes what this unit is meant to represent on the battlefield. You know, so so that's like the first one. I would say that is highly impactful that we were willing to break the rules on and say, okay, this symbolizes, you know, a change in economy um, status. It symbolizes manufacturing status. And it also symbolizes the fact that you're bringing in the heaviest of the heavy in order to fight this fight. But you're doing it in a mass producible way, which is what's really important. So the next unit, um, obviously, is the Salamander. Okay, we're talking about Nod. And of course, it you know, people go, well, if you decided that you weren't going to have any brand new units in the game, then why did you do the Salamander? And the reason why we did the Salamander was because for Nod, the Salamander represents, or I'm sorry, represents something that is very crucial for people to understand, which is the Salamander is basically like a stop gap unit. Basically, the way it works with the Salamander is that the unit is designed in a way, and this is just its core basic design, and no matter how you try to design a salamander, it ultimately ends up back in this boat, which is you're talking about a a unit that also represents epic gameplay status. Okay, but in a different sense. It is a unit that is designed not to basically face off against something like a Kodiak, but it's meant to take down existing low tier based units. Now, when I say low tier based units, I mean units that are lower tier than it. So when you think of the Salamander in the way that you want to think of the Salamander is you want to think of the Salamander in the sense of the way that you would think of like a mammoth tank, but the mammoth tank now becomes disposable due to the fact that Nod has developed a system that is able to basically thwart the mammoth tank. And that's what it is. It, it is literally a, a counter-offensive system, you know, in the way that the unit represents itself. It, it uses a counter-offensive ability that you really don't get from any other unit in the game in the way that it gives it to you. So the Salamander has the ability to destroy light mechanized divisions, heavy mechanized uh, divisions, um, or light mechanized units, heavy mechanized units. Um, it, it has the ability to do these things. It also, though, has a vulnerability factor as well. And because it has a vulnerability factor as well, this really does change the mechanics of, of how you view the Salamander. Understand, the Salamander is not the same thing as the Kodiak. In the sense that when you look at the Kodiak, the Kodiak has just sheer armor and sheer power. The Salamander, on the other hand, is, is very different. It is more of a... It has just enough to do what it needs to do. And if you manage your Salamander fleet properly, then you're great. If you don't manage your Salamander fleet properly, then you're hosed. The other thing about the Salamander, though, that makes it very unique is the fact, though, that Nod is able to basically utilize its ultimate, you know, um, attack through the Salamander system. 
which is basically, you know, it's, it's nuclear strike. So when you talk about how the salamander represents things within the not assortment, the salamander is basically that unit that works as the counter offensive unit. Okay. Primarily in terms of its, its existing status, but also the salamander does one other thing, which is it has the ability to force multiply Nod's ability to strike an enemy force with impunity. And that's what makes the unit so unique. This is one of the reasons to why we kept the unit in our game, even though leading off of the original concept of what we had, we weren't going to add brand new units in the game. Now, when you get to the Colossus, okay, the Colossus was more of an interesting one. And the reason why the Colossus was more of an interesting one was because it truly was something that came out of left field, but spoke to a bigger thing about Nod. And that was the idea that Nod would be able to utilize their avatars in a way that GDI could not utilize the Titan or the Junkernaut or the Mammoth type walkers. And this is basically what the, uh, the Colossus represents is it represents the ability for Nod to take, shall we say, Walker technology, basically modify it in the form of, you know, cybernetics and, and, and power armor and, and whatnot and shroud it in, in their own form of technological understanding. And then also, of course, be able to have a reboot system that can speak to how they adopt technologies in the traditional sense of what GDI had, but they're able to move forward with it. And again, this is something that I, I would say very important to understand because when you, when you're looking at the Colossus and you go, well, why would I build the Colossus or why would I utilize the Colossus? Well, the reason why you would utilize the Colossus is because if you have, you know, cyborgs on the battlefield, or if you have you know, avatars on the battlefield, this system allows for you to revitalize your forces on a whim. And in other words, they can just keep on fighting. Like that's how it works. Like they have the ability to keep on fighting. So when we talk about the idea of having units that overlay and I mean overlay the existing understandable factional bases that exist, there has to be an impactful measure on which you look at it and say, you can't reduplicate this with what is already existing in the faction. At the same time, it has to be a direct link to its existence. That makes perfect sense. Orbital frame technology from a story point makes perfect sense. 
from a technological standpoint? No, it doesn't. It could possibly work with Nod. It definitely wouldn't be working with GDI. Makes no sense there whatsoever. Uh, they wouldn't do anything like that. And, you know, truthfully, when it comes right down to it, GDI doesn't need to it, need to do it. I'm sorry, because they have, you know, rail cannon based, you know, uh, units and orbital frame technology simply cannot surpass rail cannon based tech. It can't. Now, one thing that we have to point out here is the simplicity of your Kodiak, your Salamander, and your um, your Colossus. They are units that are highly sophisticated in a certain sense, but simplistic, straightforward thinking in another. And this is another problem that you have with orbital frame technology. And this is something that I was trying to get Ryan to understand in our last audio, which is orbital frame units use what's called subspace compression as far as their technology goes. Okay. So what you want to do is think of like a subspace pocket form of compression. And this is what allows them basically to fire off, you know, lasers that are able to curve up and down and go like a roller coaster and then home in and hit their enemy. I mean, like that, that's partly what allows them to, to pull those kind of things off. So if you're ever trying to figure out, well, how do they actually bend light, you know, out of thin air? Well, it's subspace compression that, that does that. I mean, basically what you're talking about is a form of quantum mechanic, if you want to, um, and where they're manipulating, you know, subspocket or subspace pockets of, of, uh, of, of time in a way that gives them these favorable effects. Now, this is also the reason why they can sit up here and, you know, create, you know, a, a gravity weld in the way that they do, or they have the ability to, you know, pull weapons like out of their, you know, ass, if you will. Um, the reason why they're able to do this is because of subspace pocket compressed, uh, technologies. That's exactly what it is. Like, this is how it happens. Okay. Like this is, this is just basically how it works for Zone of the Enders. And Zone of the Enders really isn't shy about this. I mean, like, this is just how it works. It's not cheating by the way, either. Okay. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, Zone of the Enders just uses technology that is so far out there that it's cheating. No. If you look at a lot of animes, there are a lot of animes where subspace compressed pockets are exactly what Mecha actually use in order to, I'm sorry, in order to utilize greater attacks, um, hold assortments, uh, move at a rapid, you know, pace, or it plays into the ability of how they're able to be more agile than their existing, you know, uh, counterparts, uh, on the battlefield. So, this is nothing that is out of the realm of, fa of of fairness. It is totally fair. There are plenty, and I mean plenty, of mecha that actually utilize these capabilities. The difference between the orbital frame, though, and everything else is that the orbital frame effectively relies solely on subspace compressed pockets. Or subspace pocket compression, okay? However you want to phrase it, right? But basically what it does is this, is it takes a small, and I mean small compared to the rest of the universe, okay? It takes a small area of time and 
space, and then it's able to compress it and bend it to its desired results. That's what it does. Okay. Now, it can take larger areas if it wants to, but in order for it to take larger areas, it has to have a buildup time. And this is what's important to understand about this technology and how it works. Okay, so when we're talking about small, what we're talking about is basically um, an area that's big enough to fit in the in the palm of the orbital frame's hand. Okay, so understand, another thing that I do have to point out is that it is proportional to the size of the orbital frame. All right, which orbital frames maybe at best, I would give their height like around 40 to 60 feet, definitely not any bigger than that. Um, but when you talk about the idea of, you know, how, how big is an area when we talk small, we're talking about the palm of its hand, or you could talk about the, uh, about the size of a human being. Okay. A standard grown ass man. I mean, like that's, that, that's what you're talking about when you're talking small. So when you talk about homing lasers, for example, the fact that it can fire lasers and the lasers have the ability to, uh, you know, bend. Like, literally, it's bending light, okay, um, just out of nowhere. And it's directing towards a, a given intended target. Well, how does it do it? Well, what it does is it, when it goes to bend the light, it's bending, basically, a, a small sliver of time and space. That's what it's doing, which is allowing that light to basically then curvature and, you know, go into a different direction. Like, that, that's how it works. It's that simple. Nothing, nothing crazy about it here. Okay. And it, it's true. The orbital frame can do this like many, 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 many times over. It can do that. But the reality is, is that although it can do that, it has to stay in one spot to do so. Like the orbital frame can't multitask. It can't because it uses this technology and because it is highly primitive in its use of this technology. Okay. The, and I'll go into the primitiveness in a second here. The unit itself can only execute one attack at a time. It can't execute multiple attacks at a time. Now, part of this is based upon the user as well. Okay. So understand that when you talk about an orbital frame system, Ryan's whole attitude about the belief that the orbital frame integrates with the pilot and either wants to you know, keep the pilot alive or bend to the pilot's will or fulfill the pilot's needs or whatever the case might be. It, it's true. It, it concentrates on the pilot. That is how the orbital frame system interface works. But the problem is this. It can't multitask. It can't do multiple things at once. Okay. This is one of the huge problems. So it's not like it says, okay, I'm going to take care of the pilot on this end. And then I'm going to sit up here and do this on the other end. What this basically means is, is that it can't do more than one attack at a time. And this, of course, is a huge problem with this kind of system. Now, you might say to yourselves, well, Doug, what, you know, <laughs> why does that matter? Like, if, if the unit has the ability to fire off homing lasers, which might as well be the same thing as missiles, okay, without, you know, the, um, the secondary, uh, radius of damage, 
only primary, then then why on earth does that actually matter? Well, here's why it matters. Okay, and, and I want to address this here. So here's why it matters. In order to construct an orbital frame, okay, you are basically throwing as much resources into that thing as you would a Kodiak. Okay, so, so think of it like that. But a Kodiak has the ability to multitask. It has the ability to, you know, fire off its, its, you know, main, um, you know, uh, cannons, and it has the ability to lob cruise missiles. Now, depending on how crazy you want to get with the thing, you could probably also have like orcas launch from a deck on it or whatever the case might be. Okay. Depending on how you want to fashion the Kodiak, but the Kodiak for its price has the ability to do all of these things at once where the orbital frame doesn't have the ability to do that. Okay. The orbital frame, if it's going to do a multi-attack, would basically have to choose a system of, of reference that actually utilizes a, a basically a chain reaction ability. Now, there are two ways in which a normal frame could do this. It could go small, okay, and that there would basically be something like your homing laser, where effectively, you know, you just simply fire, you know, you charge up and then... Um, you know, fire, you know, shall we say strand after strand after strand just repeatedly, okay, based on your targeting system. That, that's one way to do it, and, and I, I'll give it that, fair enough. Um, or the other way to do it is you use a, you know, quantum hyper mega particle cannon, okay? And what that means is, is that you're, you know, basically building up over time a, well, actually what you're doing first off is literally, you know, um, out of thin air. Okay. And this is true. It's out of thin air. You're calling in a weapon system that basically then needs to have a charge up time, which then on firing is able to hit a target and due to the quantum, uh, nature of the weapon, um, or of the beam weapon itself, it's able not only to hit that target, but it can also hit other targets at the same time. Okay, again, this goes back to the whole idea of being able to bend time and space to what your needs are. Okay? Um, and then, of course, you have the secondary explosion effect, where, yeah, you hit that one target, it blows up, which then disperses whatever it disperses, which then blows up, you know, the next target and the next target, and then you wipe out an entire fleet in one shot. So there are different ways to actually deal with this kind of technology. Um, but the problem is, keyword is build up time. It wouldn't work against something like a Kodiak. Or something like a Salamander. Or something like a Colossus. It just doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work, the Kodiak, again, has the ability to multitask. It has the ability to literally just hammer away with rail cannons and cruise missiles at the orbital frame. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize an orbital frame cannot survive a rail cannon um, attack. It can't do that. I mean, like it would, it would take on damage. 
That doesn't mean the thing would get blown to smithereens. It just means that it would suffer a significant blow if it were hit with a rail cannon, let alone multiple rail cannon shots from one battle cruiser. So the problem that you ultimately have here is you have a system in play where, yes, it seems highly advanced on its face because you start talking about, you know, you know, subspace compression, you start talking about the ability to use quantum mechanics where you can hit one target, which in turn, due to the quantum mechanical nature of the weapon, actually can hit multiple targets all at once. And you don't even see the beam because again, you know, it's using quantum mechanics. Okay. It's literally hitting that that target in another time and space being reduplicated over and over and over again, um, just simply tilted. Think, think of a clock in, in the uh, second hand uh, just being tilted slightly over to the left um, on each replay. Like, that's what you're talking about there. And, and that's why the orbital frame is so highly effective. But the problem becomes, again, the fact that you need build-up time for these things. And build-up time is something that you don't have. This is what I was trying to explain to Ryan in terms of dealing with Robotech Mecha when he sat up here and we were talking and I said, yes, an original VF-1 um, would be able to defeat an orbital frame. And here's the reason why. Orbital frames, as I just sat up here and pointed out to you, use, you know, space compression technology, you know, uh, or sub pocket space compression technology, however we'd like to phrase it. Uh, but... Again, you have to look at the build-up time factor. The less build-up time you have, the weaker the attack is. That's how it works, okay? This poses a huge problem for the orbital frame based on a number of factors. The first thing is this. The orbital frame, if you're if we're going up against something like the Kodiak, could not use homing lasers because the Kodiak's armor is too thick. In other words it would be trying to hit the Kodiak with an attack that severely underrates the, the reality of the armor penetration factor that is needed in order to successfully do anything of significant damage. And that's one of the reasons to why the orbital frame just sucks in that scenario. Another reason to why it sucks in the scenario is if it were to sit up here and use its heavier weapons, okay, where it would use like a, a sub, you know, space uh, compressed uh, pocket to just basically fling at the Kodiak like a beach ball. Well, it could do that, but it's got to build it up. Like, you know, you're getting ready to serve um, in, in volleyball. You know, it, th that's like how it works. I mean, you guys are starting to see the problems that you have here with the orbital frame system. Ryan is not accounting for the delay time. That's what he's not accounting for. What he's counting for is basically the impact of the weapon. That's what he's doing. But what he, he fails to understand is that, A, in order to utilize the weapon, you have to have a certain level of build time. B, in order for the weapon to be effective, yet again... You've got to have more build time on top of that. So, subspace, you know, compression works really great 
as a form of weaponry, except when you have to factor in the fact that you need time to create a greater compression in order for the weapon to be more potent. Time is the key factor here. Time is the key factor. And that's what Ryan is lacking in the understanding on the initial outset of the orbital frame. It's not that he doesn't have an ability to understand it. He definitely does. He goes back and watches Zone of the Enders and he'll see it as plain as day. But it's the kind of thing you kind of overlook. You know, you do. Now, let us not forget about the VF-1. So, for those of you who have seen Macross or Robotech, and we're talking more Robotech here, we're not talking Macross here. Um, when I say that the Veritech fighter, okay, the original from the uh, Macross saga, the VF-1 can beat the orbital frame, you might be saying, okay, in, in what context? And it's, it's very simple in how it can beat the orbital frame. The first thing is this, is that it uses a, uh, it has two forms of, of Gatling gun. All right. It has a beam based one, um, that is seen in Robotech. Uh, but it also uses one that is ceramic based. Okay. So there are two types. Now, as far as the VF one goes, I would probably realistically go with a ceramic based one. Okay. Using ceramic rounds. And the reason for it is that Robotech in the way that it's written is interesting in the fact that you have a, a, a clause, if you will. Okay. It's an unspoken clause in the way that the story is done, which is basically technologically. All right. And we're talking technologically here. Technologically, Robotech has the ability to go up against whatever, whatever, based on the fact that there is no set premise for how strong armor is, for example, or how lethal, um, attacks are. Okay. So like one of the big problems that Macross has is a series. Okay. And we're talking about, uh, like Macross, we'll say plus going forward is basically what they do is they get into this whole, like, all right, you know, 30 caliber versus 50 caliber and, yada, 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 so on and so forth. And, and, they, and they get stuck into all this technological, you know, garbage. And they say, this is how powerful a reaction missile is. And this is how powerful this is, so on and so forth. Where Robotech doesn't do that. And it's a good thing that Robotech doesn't do that because all you have to do is just rely on the animation. In other words, you see the visuals, you see what the thing is able to do. Therefore, all you got to do is ask yourself, okay, in this case, can an orbital frame's armor survive that? Now, if you're talking about the VF-1 specifically, all right, and, and this is the difference between, like, Robotech and Macross, for example. Robotech does not use hard data. What they do is they use observational data. And this is, uh, is an ingenious thing, I have to tell you. It's an ingenious thing to do something like this. Because it works off of, basically, a very similar premise of Zone of the Enders, where you work off of observational-based stuff. In other words, you observe it in the series, and then you're able to take something very similar to it and say, okay, this right here is the benchmark. Where in Macross, what happens is they don't work off of observational data. What they do is they work off of hard data. And they say, okay, you know what? This is a 30 caliber. This is a, a 50 caliber. This right here is 120 and da, da 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 and this is how much damage it's got and so on and so forth. This is the difference between them. So 
This is why I have to throw out as a disclaimer right now, I'm not going with Matt Cross because no, Matt Cross in no way, shape or form could ever sit up here and actually, <laughs> it could not, it couldn't take down the orbital frame. No, it couldn't. Um, not from an, not from a, not from a, uh, a standard perspective. It doesn't like a Valkyrie doesn't have that kind of ability from a standard perspective. Okay. Now, if we started talking about, um, if we started talking about, I want to say, uh, weapon packs and stuff like that, like fast packs and things of that nature or angel packs, then, then that might be a little different. Um, but in Robotech, it's again, different, uh, different system of, of measuring and it's a different story, uh, regardless of the visuals being actually identical, they treat things very differently there. So based on that, we can, this is why I go with Robotech and this is why Ryan would also go with Robotech as well. So getting past that part, we start talking about the orbital frame. Okay. And when we're talking about the orbital frame, what we have to remember here is this is the orbital frames armor just is so it just its level of tough toughness is just so it is so well stated in zone of the enders when it's going up against the baseline lev and that does nothing in terms of damage but then when they pull out these heavy particle beams it does do significant damage to the unit all right so you know that all right so that there sets the the standard for the orbital frame well, if we're talking about the VF-1 in Robotech, the VF-1 in Robotech, because it uses, you know, um, a highly lethal ceramic round, it does have the ability to inflict the same damage per round as a particle beam cannon does. Okay, and this is shown throughout Robotech, like when it goes up against the Cyclops, uh, when it, you know, um, just literally picks battle pods apart, uh, and all sorts of things. I mean, like when, when you're, when you're trying to rate the, you know, GU 11 is what they call it, uh, gun pods, ceramic rounds, they are, are highly lethal. You know, there's not one incidence in Robotech where the GU 11 ceramic round did not have the ability to pierce through whatever it was being asked to pierce through. It always stood up to the challenge. Now, again, what I have to point out is this, is there's that, but then also you could do it in the form of a, of a, uh, a beam weapon. So there are two ways to do it. But here I'm going to go with ceramic round, number one. Number two, um, the other reason why I'm going with ceramic round is because you don't have to worry about cooldown times and stuff like that. This, again, is a weakness of the orbital frame. The orbital frame needs build-up times. It doesn't need a cooldown time, but it does need a build-up time. The GU-11 doesn't need that. Now, when we get down just to sheer speed, okay, that is just dependent on what mode you're in. If you want to go in a fighter-based mode, obviously you get, uh, with, I want to say, the protocultural react reactor-based uh, system that it works off of, um, you get, you know, quite honestly, uh, a level of performance. The orbital frame is not going to be able to meet unless you choose an orbital frame type that is based off of a fighter transformation design. I think that's just fair enough to say, okay, which that's one thing that me and Ryan didn't really discuss, but in Zone of the Enders, yes, they do have transformable based uh, uh, fighters um, that are orbital frames. So yes, Zone of the Enders does deal from the standpoint of mechamorphosis, if, if you're wondering. Um... 
So that there goes to the VF1. Uh, again, if you're talking about not a fighter form, but we're talking about the Guardian form or the Battleoid form, definitely in the Guardian form, I'm giving it to the VF1. And that's probably realistically what I would take when the orbital frame in. But if you were talking about the Battleoid form, the Battleoid, the Battleoid form would be more interesting only because it comes down to the level of the pilot. And I think that's ultimately what Ryan is envisioning. Ryan is envisioning, okay, Battleoid to orbital frame, you know, um, that's what he's envisioning. I don't think he's envisioning, uh, you know, me to really sit up here and choose a guardian or a fighter mode or something like that. The reason why I wouldn't really choose a fighter mode is if you get hit in the cockpit, it's over. I mean, like it just, it's done. The Veritex is done. Um, and, and the cockpit is just insanely exposed. If you go into a guardian mode, you have a lesser chance of being hit in a cockpit and you really do capitalize on tight quarter, um, you know, maneuverability. And that is something that the orbital frame just can't deal with at that level. I mean, granted, the orbital frame does have the ability and it's, it, it's pretty well shown that because it uses, you know, subspace, uh, pocket compression, that it's able to take its physical form and defy natural, shall we say, you know, um, laws of gravity or, you know, outer, or, or, uh, you know, uh, lack thereof in terms of gravity. Um, and that's why the thing's just dancing like a ballet dancer, um, is doing a ballet dance <laughs> across the catapult system as it cuts down all those LEBs. I mean, like, that's exactly what it's doing. Um, but to the point of that, like I said, that's where I would realistically go with, I think like, yeah, guardian mode. Um, cause that's going to give me from a tight quarters perspective, I think, uh, enough distance from the orbital frame, but also a tighter form of, you know, um, maneuverability for what I'd be looking for in that, in that kind of scenario. Uh, and then of course it comes down to, if you were talking in the battleoid form, the battleoid form of the VF1 is definitely equivalent to that of the orbital frame in terms of the amount of damage that it can take. And I think that's one of the key things. Like when you look at Robotech, the Robotech Veritech VF1 um, definitely can take a lot of damage in its battleoid mode. It can take more damage in the battleoid mode than it can effectively in the other two. And that's why it exists. So, you know, homing lasers, for example, wouldn't work that well against battleoid mode only because the VF1 has the ability to absorb that kind of punishment. You know, and it comes down to how many homing lasers are you going to be able to use, which is primarily just like one. So this is one of the real interesting things about the battle between the orbital frame and a VF1, which is when it gets right down to the very nature of what you're talking about here, what you've got to understand here is that the orbital frame is a single tasking system. It can only do one thing at a time. A VF1, on the other hand, can do rapid things in succession. That's what it can do. And, and this is one of the key differences here is that you, you are talking about a reaction time. The other thing about the orbital frame is because it's only fighting one unit, it has to fight the unit in a way where it can maximize its damage against the VF-1. If the VF-1 pilot is not going in there in a guardian mode, or if it's not going in there in a um, fighter mode, 
you can kiss your homing laser goodbye. Like there's no reason in using a homing laser. Okay. And, and honestly, that is one of the highly attractive things that you get with the orbital frame is the fact that it's able to use like a web like based homing laser that is able to cut down multiple units all at once. And this is very true. But like I said, when you talk about the VF1, the VF1 has very thick armor in its battleoid configuration. It is definitely a tougher unit in its battleoid configuration. But more importantly, what the VF1 has in its battleoid configuration is it still has a certain level of maneuverability that can definitely take on the orbital frame from the amount of distance that the gun pod would provide. And that's one of the key things here that you have to look at is that the VF1, whether it's in the Earth's atmosphere or whether it's in, I want to say, uh, in outer space, has the ability. It, it literally does have the ability to, um, to stand toe to toe within, I want to say, the physical distance of what the gun pod provides. It can stand toe to toe to the orbital frame. The orbital frame simply just cannot outmaneuver the VF-1's gun pod at that close of a distance. It just can't do it. It wasn't designed to do that. And this is one of the things, again, I think where Ryan, like, kind of just, um, you know, is going to miss the mark on this, is that when you look at the VF-1, the VF-1, when it fights in its battleoid configuration, and all you got to do is just go watch Robotech. Um, and, and you can watch the battle between like Max and Miriam Sterling when she's in her, in her, uh, Quadrano, um, high mobility power armor and he's in VF1 battleoid configuration. Okay. It, like everything you need to know is right there. Like you might as well just replace that Quadrano high mobility armor with the orbital frame, which that thing's faster than the orbital frame is anyways. And he takes it down, you know, and, and that's, that's part of what I'm trying to say here is that it's not as easy as saying, oh, let me go watch one animation and then reminisce about it and then say, ah, this is why I can win or this is why it's going to win. In reality, no, it, it doesn't win because it doesn't work off those marks. So you have that. Now, I know what some of you guys might be thinking, which is, so you're going to do ceramic, you know, ceramic round this thing to death. No, you don't have to do that. Uh, Ryan brings up a good point, though. If your whole attitude is you're going to fire missiles, all right? fire missiles at the orbital frame, it's kind of like a waste of time. I agree with him on that, on, on that note. I don't think you're realistically, in the way that the orbital frame works, you're realistically going to fire, you know, conventional, all right, and I'm just saying conventional, uh, you know, anti-mecha warheads up against an orbital frame and you're going to kill the thing. Like, no, that part's true. If your whole attitude is, is that you're going to sit up here and just lob some missiles at it, then yeah, no, it's not going to work. Now, when you're talking the salamander, okay, and, and I got to go back to this because I sat up here and I said, look at the Kodiak, okay, and what it could do. Uh, the Colossus, again, it, it would just tear the orbital frame to shreds. Uh, but if you were to look at the salamander, okay, the salamander would definitely be a weaker unit. There's no doubt. But the difference between the salamander and other units is that the salamander is able to literally fire homing missiles in succession. Its ability to fire homing missiles in succession, and that's partly due to its, its greater, its greater size, 
um, gives it a reasonable chance against the orbital frame. It does. And, and that's one of the things. When we talk about the orbital frame and when we talk about its abilities, okay, to deflect missiles for all practical purposes, what we're talking about is basically a scenario where, you know, the United, like, Mars military forces decided that they were going to, you know, fire, you know, all these cruise missiles at the orbital frame. And when they fired all of these cruise missiles at the orbital frame, the orbital frame was at such a distance that it was able to, you know, either just literally uh, jam the the frequency of the missile, and in a sense you could say that, or what it was able to do is, you know, detonate one missile and then the rest detonated just due to their close proximity, or what it was able to do was it was just able to, you know, basically blow them up, you know, just blow them all up if, if it wants to. I mean, like, it has the ability basically to thwart off long-range missile attacks. It does have that. I, I, I have to give that to him in that respect. This is one reason why I'm going with a ceramic gun pod and I'm not going with anything else is that it really does come down to that tight quarters ceramic based gun pod scenario. That's what it comes down to. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, in an idealistic situation, I'd probably want to face the orbital frame with a VF1 in an actual city. That's exactly what I would do. I'd face it in an actual city, you know, um, cause it's definitely not going to be able to pull a gun and mechs on me. Um, but I wouldn't mind like having it in a tighter scenario where it's able to lessen its maneuverability. Granted, what does that mean? It's going to want to build up its subspace, you know, um, compression weapon factor in order to inflict maximum damage upon me. But I will also say this, a Veritech fighter has the ability to deal with that level of damage. And I got to point that out. Okay, again, we're talking Robotech Mecha here. And like the idea that the orbital frame is going to build up some giant beach ball of, you know, proportional to its own size of compressed space and then just fling it at a Robotech Mecha. And the Robotech Mecha is just going to automatically be destroyed it doesn't work like that, partly because Robotech Mecha have the ability to go through fold and defold processes. In other words, they have the ability to transition through hyperspace into standard space. Okay, so when it comes to subspace compression and stuff like that, it doesn't affect Robotech Mecha in the same way that it would affect your Gundam or it would affect your Zaku or something of that nature. And this is, again, something that Ryan's missing from a technological perspective, if that were the idea. You know, I mean, if his whole idea is like, here, I'm just going to build up a giant subspace, you know, uh, beach ball, and I'm going to fling it at you. It's like, nah, it's not going to work. Now, it's not to say that it can't do some damage. It very well possibly could, you know, but the reality is the Veritech fighter would catch it in its tracks, you know, and, and literally, you know, if, if the whole idea is, oh, I'm going to sit up here and just, 
you know, build up, you know, that giant, ginormous ball, the Veritech fighter could easily just simply shoot its arm off. That thing collapses to the ground and then self-detonates right next to the orbital frame itself. Boom, and then it's over. I mean, like, that that's how it could work. Now, that's making the assumption that the orbital frame doesn't have the ability to deal with its own medicine, which I do believe it actually can. So I don't necessarily believe that even if a Veritech fighter were within mid-process of the orbital frame, um, building up, you know, a massive ball of subspace compression, if the Veritech fighter were to sit up here and, you know, shoot its uh, arm off or whatever, and the thing fell down and collapsed and then self-detonated right on top of the orbital frame, the orbital frame wouldn't survive, but I think it would actually survive it. So that's just to be fair about that. And, and the thing is this, you got to look at the benchmark of what you're talking about here, okay? And this goes into another thing, the benchmark. The orbital frame is working off of a benchmark that is equivalent to, like, effectively a Zaku 2, okay? And in all practical purposes, it really is equivalent to a Zaku 2 from Gundam. And you can't, you just can't do that. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. It's like, if, for the sake of the conversation here, when we talk about, like, a VF1 being compared to a Zaku 2, that would be the same thing as like saying, let's compare Zaku to, to just for the sake of the conversation, we're going to say, um, the RGZ from Char's counterattack. Okay. Like, like that's basically what, 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 what you, this, this is where your comparison's going here. Okay. If you're going to talk about like how far apart is a VF1 to an LEV. Like that, that's basically what your comparison might as well be. All right. Which if anybody remembers the RGZ from Char's counterattack when Armor Array was using it, and that's what I'm talking about here, then you can remember that thing was pretty, pretty damn lethal. You know, um, you know, Char wasn't necessarily getting the best of him in that RGZ. It wasn't like that. So in, in the Garadogas weren't, weren't that good either. So my point of what I'm going after here, what I'm trying to say, okay, is that when you're, when you're making this comparison of the orbital frame, it is true you could sit up here and make the comparison that the orbital frame, for all practical purposes, would be in the realm of Char's counterattack. I think that that's fair. That's what Ryan wants to do. If he's trying to stick it out by Gundam timeline, I would definitely say, yeah, you could say that the orbital frame is equivalent to something that you would have in terms of Char's counterattack. If you're factoring in psycho, psycho frame, if you're factoring in the funnels, or, um, if you're, if you're factoring in, I want to say a whole host of things. In fact, you might even want to put it on par with Gundam Unicorn and it's fully upgraded state or something even greater than that. I could agree to those things. I'm not saying that it can't, it's not in that realm. Okay. What I am saying though, is that you have to look at the practicality of the actual unit. And when you look at the practicality of the unit and when you factor in its damage to, um, you know, it's damage to build up time ratio. This is where the unit falls short. This is its weakness. And this is its intended weakness. I mean, if you, if you watch Zone of the Enders, you know, Idolo, 
watch it on YouTube. It's there. I mean, like I said, just type in Zone of the Enders and the Google, you know, then click video afterwards uh, on the search and then go to page two. And at the very bottom, you'll find, you know, Idolo 21, you know, 57 or 2163 or whatever it is. Go ahead and watch it. And you'll see at the end when the thing dies, the thing dies due to the fact that it takes way too much time for it to do a buildup. You know, that's, that's what it is. That's why the thing gets destroyed. <clears throat> you know, and, and granted, also it speaks to how good that story is. I mean, it's a good story. I love the story, you know, um, and in the orbital frame itself was a fantastic piece of machinery. There's no two ways about it. It was better than those levs. Not a single lev on a one-on-one was going to defeat that thing. But in all fairness, you are able to gauge the unit's level of performance from a battle perspective. You know, and the fact is, it really is going up against practically Zaku's and Zaku snipers for all intended purposes. That's what, that's what like the, the levs are. Okay. Or LEV lev. Um, and I want to point that out here. So, when you start talking about, again, Robotech, and you start talking about the VF-1, and you talk about its capabilities, there's no way on earth you're going to compare a LEV to a VF-1. There's no way you could do that. You know, that, thing's just, that thing is equally as far as apart from the LEV as the orbital frame is in terms of its technology. You know, and, and again, I think that, you know, this is where it's just, it's called going back, reviewing the material, getting a fresh take on the material, and then understanding why this material works versus why it doesn't work. And remember, I, I'm equating the weakness of the orbital frame primarily to um, equating it to the, um, you know, damage to build up time. That's what I'm equating it to. Okay, so when we say, all right, what makes sense versus what doesn't make sense, why would you do what you do with the orbital frame versus why wouldn't you do what you do with the orbital frame, it comes down to the type of system that it is, and it is a single-tasking system. There's nothing in Zone of Enders that shows any of those orbital frames can do more than one thing. And it could just be the pilots, I don't know, but the fact is, yeah, they are single-tasking systems. Now, when we look at Robotech, you know, Robotech actually works, I want to say very differently, in the fact that it's not a single tasking uh, system. I mean, you can do multiple things at a time, or, I mean, depending on the, the capability of the mecha, or what you can do is you can sit up here and just work in rapid succession. Most Robotech mecha, in all fairness, work in rapid succession. Okay. So I don't want to make it sound like, Oh, you know, Robotech mecha just do like three or four things at one time. And then there you go. No, most Robotech mecha work in a rapid succession. They don't do multiple things at a time. And the reason for it is, I mean, the pilots are human. Okay. So again, there is a weakness that you have. And this is more predicated to the human pilot at this point. Um, now the last thing I do want to talk about are human pilots. I did tell Ryan that it comes down to the pilot that's going up against the orbital frame. 
And I, I meant that. Um, there are certain pilots that can easily sit up here and take down the orbital frame. Um, there are certain pilots that would not be able to in a, in a VF-1. If I were putting a pilot up against the orbital frame, I'm either going with Max Sterling or I'm going with Rick Hunter. That's probably who I'm going with. Uh, Roy Foker, eh, we could say a maybe, but I would probably go with Max Sterling or, or, um, I want to say, uh, Roy Foker. Uh, Marie Crystal definitely could sit up here and take on the orbital frame, but if I was going to do that, I wouldn't give her a VF1. I'd actually probably give her her, uh, Logan. That's what I would do. Uh, cause she was pretty amazing in that. Or go with even Ajax, to tell you the truth. But I didn't use those as my chosen units of assortment from a gameplay perspective. So I, I really can't do that now. Okay. I can't do that now. Um, cause that wouldn't be fair for Ryan's positioning. But yeah, it'd be like, uh, Max Sterling or Rick Hunter. You know, Ben Dixon definitely would die. He'd die simply because he's, he, it's, it's plot based. He'd be dead on a doornail. And then of course, I want to say Roy Foker. Roy Foker probably could do it. Um, and he would, I think actually he could, and he would, <coughs> but the problem is with Roy Foker plot death as well. I'm not, I'm not really big in choosing pilots that, that are going to have a plot death to them. So radium obviously didn't die. If you watch zone of the enders, Dolores, I, then you find out radium's not dead. Okay. Uh, but just some weird shit, man. Like, that happens there. But, um, yeah, it is piloted based. I mean, like the VF one can do what it can do, but it comes down to who's going to be the best pilot to actually get the job done. And, and I think that that's something that you have to look at from a, um, from a, uh, you know, story perspective as uh, far as that goes. So yeah, you got to look at what's plot based versus what's not plot based, what makes sense versus what doesn't make sense. And, um, I, I am really, you know, big on that. I'm not, you know, going to sit up here and just choose some random fighter pilot, you know, that got shot down and then say, ah, this is going to be the orbital frame. No. Uh, and I mean, there, there's a possibility uh, that that could happen. I mean, like if you were talking like Scott Bernard, for example, I could see him getting shot down, but I also, Scott Bernard comes back. I mean, he, he just does. I mean, the Invid invasion couldn't kill him. Um, you know, the Envid Prince, uh, could not kill him. He just comes back stronger and stronger every single time. So, uh, that's the kind of pilot that would come back stronger. Jonathan Wolf, as much as I love him, you know, it would be a draw. It would be a draw it, it, depending on where you're at in the story. Um, if it were a zone of inner story, then probably he'd survive. He'd survive so that he could tell the tale. But later on when he fights an ender, you know, in his own story, okay, the ending of his story, now he, he would, it'd be a draw, he'd destroy the ender, then he would also, you know, um, run into a situation where some instrument explodes in, in terms of his cockpit, and then he takes some shrapnel, and then he decides that he just wants to, you know, just lie next to the Veritech, um, out in the middle of a, of a field, and just, you know, take a nap, and then he dies, you know, that's what happens, he, he dies. I mean, like, that, that's, that's the kind of thing that you're talking about in Robotech. I mean, different characters just go down different paths of piloting. Um, but no, I am talking about doing a straight forward path of piloting. I'm not talking about anything extravagant or anything crazy. So, uh, there we go. Okay. 
Um, so really this here should wrap up the whole Idolo discussion. I mean, unless Ryan wants to talk about it again, but the reason to why I, I wanted to have this last segment was to explain why I don't believe the orbital frame can win. I don't, but I also don't believe that the orbital frame is necessarily a great system to try to utilize in CNC Xenoforce Reborn. I just don't believe that. I mean, like, I've, I've seen enough of CNC Xenoforce Reborn. I, I know because I, you know, I'm a developer of it. Um, and I can tell you right now, if you were having orbital frames, you know, produced on a massive scale, granted, they would have these powers and, and I, and I give it that, but they would get overwhelmed. That's the problem. When, when they get overwhelmed, then it's over, you know, and that's, that's the issue with the orbital frame. There's just not enough of them to make up for their time, you know, uh, time build up to damage ratio and if they could do that then they'd be fine but otherwise no they, they just they get overwhelmed and then they're destroyed so that's something that i was wanting to basically you know discuss you know in this in this last round of talking about um you know the orbital frame the other thing i was wanting to do was to give you guys context in terms of our conversation of why i believe the vf1 is the the premier fighter that could take down the orbital frame and understand something i don't just believe it's the vf1 i mean i believe the ajax could do it i believe the logan could do it i believe realistically if it came right down to it um if it were a ground conflict based uh setup the hover tank could totally do it i i definitely believe that um i also believe that you know um the beta fighter would bury that thing in no time flat uh, you know, in, in the shadow fighter, which is, yeah, it, it wouldn't even be a contest. So there are a lot of mecha that I believe in Robotech can defeat the, and, and we're talking human mecha here that can, can, can defeat the, um, the orbital frame system. You know, I, I also believe like the Royal command command battleoid could do it without a problem. It could definitely just bury that thing without any real issues. Um, you've got that, the, uh, I want to say invid fighter Bioroid. Uh, the red bioroid could do it. I mean, like those mecha could do it too. Um, Zentrani, um, high mobility or heavy assault power armor that could do it too. In fact, I'd go with the Zentrani. I might be willing to go with the Zentrani officer battle pod. I don't know. I'd have to think that one through. I think that'd be more on even ground. Um, but there, there is definitely a possibility that it could. And, um, that's, I, I would say that's about it off, off the top of my head, um, that we could talk about and say, yeah, that it could happen. Um, but I wouldn't push it too far. I wouldn't push it too far. So guys, that concludes this segment of, you know, the whole, actually that just ends the entire segment, um, multi, multi-segment, I guess I should say of the whole zone of enders, Dolores, I, um, zone of enders, Idolo you know, orbital frame, you know, conversation there. Um, and with that being said, uh, don't forget, we are going to have a live, uh, episode being done this Saturday. Um, and we are going to be really, I think, um, talking about some interesting things in regards to, I'm, I'm imagining it's going to be getting a wing this time. Cause we're, we're basically done with what we're doing with UC for the moment. So I think we're moving on to wing, um, 
I know Ryan just posted up, uh, you know, Gundam X there, uh, for you guys to see. And, um, I think it's gotten like one comment so far. Uh, I'd have to go back and check, but yeah, that's going to conclude this. So with that being said, you guys take care. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye.